Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everybody. Hi, Kim. How are you? Hey, Mark. I'm all right. How are you? Okay. It's always great to talk wine with you and our listeners. And today, Kim, we have some pretty interesting topics, I think. We'd like to start with uh, the first article that was in Wine Enthusiast Magazine, Wineries and Wine Businesses that are Black-Owned. And I thought this was very, very interesting, Kim. I learned a lot. They had a list of individuals from all over the, the world, right? U.S., France. And I thought I would pick what I thought were interesting ones, and you pick what you thought were interesting. Hopefully, we can find something the listeners will uh, find new and exciting. Absolutely. You know, I always find that it's very um, important for us as members of the business to highlight some of these wine winery owners, wine business owners that maybe don't get a lot of press or get a lot of attention. And I know that I have done um, tastings in the past, say, highlighting women winemakers or women-owned wine businesses. And I think it's really important that we support all demographics in the wine world. And there's not a lot that we really have ever paid that much attention to for wineries and wine businesses that have black ownership. And I think that it's really important to make sure that those folks are recognized and that we are trying to put our dollars behind those people because this is, um, I think, an important group that hasn't necessarily got the funding or gotten the recognition that they really deserve. And there is a lot out there, either, like you said, from the US or from abroad that are making some really nice wines. And I have to say a couple of these uh, that were on this list are folks who I am familiar with and have had uh, conversations with, which is fun too. You know, it's always nice <laughs> to see lists of wineries and be like, oh, I know them. <laughs> That's a really kind of fun thing for me. So it's, you know, I really think it's nice to, to highlight some folks who need a little bit more recognition and to put our dollars behind these businesses that we really want to see, um, to see do well. Yeah, well said. And why don't you start with one, Kim, that you thought was uh, interesting? Let's start with the U.S. wineries or wine businesses. Sure. So I, what I tried to do is go through this list and make it a little bit more useful for Massachusetts consumers. Because as we all know, wine in the U.S. is like 50 different countries because each state has its own restrictions, its own laws, and its own distribution channels when it comes to wine. So if you are in Massachusetts, you have access to buy different kinds of wines than maybe you would have if you lived in Ohio or you lived in Oregon or you lived in New Hampshire. So not all of the wineries that are listed on this list, um, which is from Wine Spectator. Is it Wine Spectator or is it Wine Enthusiast? Wine Enthusiast, yeah. From Wine Enthusiast are available in the state of Massachusetts. So um, a lot of them are available to order online but you can't necessarily go to your local wine shop and say, hey, I'm very interested in purchasing a few bottles or a case of these wines. But that's a, that's a great approach too, because interesting, when I found one, I found interesting the story. The first thing I did is look it up mm -hmm. to make sure if it was for sale in Massachusetts. So it, we kind of approached it the same way. Yeah, and I, I feel like for me, that's an important thing because 
I like to be on the side of the consumer when it comes to all of these things. So I was always super frustrated when I would go to like a big wine tasting like the Boston Wine Expo and taste a whole bunch of wines and you ask the person behind the table who's doing the pouring, hey, where can I buy this? And they either say, oh, I have no idea or, oh, we don't sell it in Massachusetts. It's like, ah, why are you having me taste this wine if I fall in love with it and now I can't buy it anywhere? So I like to make a point of being if I'm going to show a wine at a tasting or if I'm going to talk about a wine on my website, I want to be like, and here's where you can buy it. Or at least it's available in the state of Massachusetts so somebody can special order it for you. So that being said, some of the ones that uh, stood out to me that are available to purchase here in Massachusetts, one that I really focused in on uh, is a winery called Bodkin, which is out of California because to no one's surprise, I am interested in it because it makes a sparkling wine and it makes a sparkling Sauvignon Blanc, which I think is wicked cool and would absolutely love to try. So this is a California house that produces mostly white wines, including the Sauvignon Blanc that is bubbly. And as I tend to drink a little bit more white wine than red wine, and especially for California wines, I like these lighter, crisper whites. And I think that this uh, is a winery that we should be paying a little bit of attention to. Was there any background on that winery, Kim? As far um, as not fairly new or fairly new. Mm-hmm. Yep. What was one that stood out for you? The first one I saw, Kim, was Amor Geneve. Did you see this winemaker woman? I did. Yes. So interesting enough, the first blue wine was supposedly created by this woman. I thought that was very interesting because I always thought it was related to a Spanish producer, which was never really imported into the United mm-hmm. States. So I reached out to see if this wine is sold. It's a blue wine. Uh, she uses natural coloring to make it blue color. And I looked it up. It's not sold in mass. So I sent the winery a message and she replied. So what you were saying earlier, it's so interesting when you see things and you end up communicating with people and she wrote right back said she had no distributor who do you think she could talk to to get it into mass because she's been trying she didn't want to really deal with you know the big guy she was looking for someone nice small who could push her product so i thought it was just great first you know the first one i saw and ended up communicating with the winemaker so hopefully we'll see her blue wines here in massachusetts soon that's really cool you know sometimes we forget that a lot of these places are small businesses with, you know, just a few people behind them. And if you reach out to these places, you're going to talk to a person, you know, you're not talking to some big conglomeration. And I found this with all of my communications with winemakers and folks in the Finger Lakes that, you know, these are small operations. They're real people getting dirty and doing the work and you send them an email, they communicate with you. So I think that's a really good reminder to, to me that, you know, for these, when we do these kinds of articles and we read about all of these smaller wineries and smaller maybe importers or whatnot, that we think on the one hand, oh, you know, it's such a shame that they don't have any distribution in Massachusetts. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, that means that they're really small. So like you just did. Let's reach out to them and see if we can get a conversation going. So I'm really glad you did that. Yeah, just to let them know, hey, you know, this is something I'd be interested in if you ever bring into the state or looking. So, and once again, like you said, Kim, it's not only she's small, 
but she only has one SKU, only one product. Just that so it's not one. like she has a whole line. She has one item she sells. So uh-huh. very hard for her to get in the state. So sure. hopefully we'll see what happens. Yeah, that is hard. What's another one you saw, Kim? So another one, um, actually, and this is the one that jumped out the most for me. This wasn't, this isn't an American one. This is um, a South African producer and the label is Seven Sisters. And it was started by, um, by seven women and they got together and they make this line of wines that is very, um, very female focused and has a, a, no, a number of different varieties in their line. And I met one of the uh, owners of this group a number of years ago, I was working at a different, a different wine job. But what jumped out at me that this sort of triggered, but is I think indicative of this entire list is that there are so many women winemakers and women business owners on this list that it's really, I think, gratifying to see so much work and so much recognition being given to, to women winery owners and winemakers. So that, I, I think, was something that was um, a standout to me on this list, is that not only are these Black-owned businesses, but they're also women-owned businesses as well. Yeah. And you mentioned a lot of them, they treat it as a business. So one of the bigger names on the list that I saw was Nicki Minaj. She owns that MYX Fusions mm-hmm. line line. So when you're talking, there's a lot of celebrities. Right. Um, Which could be a whole a other conversation about celebrity wine labels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's the way they approached the article. It was not only wineries, but people that are in the wine business. So right. it was an interesting take on it. And the, the big thing that stuck out for me was a lot of athletes that had wineries and wine businesses. So there was actually three I saw that stuck out to me. First was Charles Woodson Winery. Do you remember Charles Woodson, Kim, from ex-football player? No. No? So you're not a football fan. Anyway, Charles Woodson, (laughs) ex-football player, he has a Central Coast winery. He's a sign of wines. There was also one called Domain Curry. You ever hear uh, Seth Curry? Oh, sure. Stephen Curry, his sister. Seth Curry is in his wife and his sister own this winery. So mm-hmm. I'm sure he's enjoying that. And Wade Sellers from Dwayne Wade. Is that Dwayne the, Wade's line? Yeah. Yep. The NBA basketball player also has his own line. There was a bunch of musicians who had uh, some businesses, uh, the LVE collection, which is related to the Raymond Vineyards. I think John Legend, is it Legend or Legend? Legend. Legend. He is involved with that. There was a few rappers that had... Uh, a winery business. And in France, you should know this from being the bubbly queen, two very high-end champagne houses are owned by uh, one by Jay-Z and another by Isaiah Thomas. An old yeah, that Jay-Z basketball. bottle. <laughs> yeah. The difficulty in trying to, to source bottles of that wine is crazy. It's expensive, expensive. It's very uh, expensive. Sparkling. Sh- well, champ- it is true champagne, it's right? Mm-hmm, it's champagne. And I believe Isaiah Thomas's is a, a true champagne too. I had mm-hmm. a chance to try that. And, and that is in the state of Mass. So if yeah. anyone's looking for that. So Ace Anything of else? Spades is the champagne we're talking about. Folks. What is it? Ace of Spades. Ace of Spades. Yeah. yeah. I'm in, I'm on the Brignat, B-R-I-G-N-A-C. How would you say that in French? Brignat. I knew you'd know. <laughs> So, I mean, a very interesting article, a good take, and it was very well-timed with everything going on in the, the world lately. And a lot of variety. You know, we touched on a couple of different things, but there are, you know, a number of places in California, in Oregon, like I mentioned, South Africa. South Africa is sort of a tricky situation because 
it, it's only been very recently that non-white winemakers and non-white winery owners were even allowed to operate in South Africa. So after the end of apartheid, it's been a very, very slow buildup of their wine industry trying to make it a little bit more equitable. So it is good that now we are seeing a little bit more of South Africans making their own wines. And now we start to see them on the international scene. So a little bit of variety. Like we said, male winemakers, female winemakers, different states, different countries, different styles. Uh, so a little something for everyone. So hopefully yeah. we'll start you know, seeing a little bit more of these wines in Massachusetts. And it's, I feel very important to get behind businesses that are owned by all shapes and sizes and colors of people. And if we really uh, want to support these businesses, a great way to do it is with our dollars. Yeah, and I was surprised, Kim, the length of the, the resources they gave in this article. You know, mm -hmm. you mentioned uh, South Africa, but there was also Germany and Italy. They highlighted all sorts of uh, countries you could find yep. uh, Black-owned. So it was very, very interesting to me. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim and Mark. You can find more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com and more information about Mark at his website, franklinliquors.com. Welcome back to The Wonderful World of Wine. Uh, we are Mark and Kim. And the topic that we want to talk about right now uh, is something that I, I think we have uh, addressed before, but there was an article in Wine Enthusiast magazine that we felt it was this isn't a, a topic that it's important to bring up now as people are maybe doing a little bit more online shipping and as their wines are undergoing a little bit more movement from place to place than uh, we might otherwise have seen in the past. And that is what happens to a bottle of wine as it is being shipped. There is this uh, condition called bottle shock that sometimes can happen to a wine if it is either moved great distances or is really, you know, agitated a lot. And sometimes it can, for a little while, change the taste of the wine and change the aromas of the wine. This is one of those crazy things that science hasn't necessarily gotten to the bottom, bottom of. Yeah, it's a very interesting subject. And a lot of times you'll hear it called uh, bottle sickness or the wine is what they call dumb. Dumb, which, <laughs> yeah, I dumb wine. <laughs> you hear that saying, I kind of, when I first heard that, I didn't know what the heck was going on with. Is dumb wine up there with cheap wine, Mark? Yeah, inexpensive and <laughs> dumb. You don't, don't say stupid, you say dumb, right? Cheap and dumb. <laughs> Basically, what happens with this is the wine just totally shuts down with aromatics and, and flavors, right? It's, it's either recently yeah. shipped or it was shipped overseas. It was it jostled around. It was freshly bottled, just recently shipped. And then it gets this little time period where it doesn't taste the way it should taste. Right. And you see it listed all different ways. And usually it's a long distance shipping thing. And they recommend anytime something is shipped, no matter if you order it in the mail or you order it from across the world, you should let it sit at least a week. Do you do that, Kim, at all? I do. And I've run into cases where I haven't done that. And it has really made a big difference. Some, I remember one time at a, a big tasting that we had had some bottles that had been shipped directly from California. Um, and they like literally got there the day of the tasting and we opened them up and like you could barely smell anything and we're like, oh no. And I've had other bottles that were bottled specifically for us at the restaurant 
and they hadn't had time to settle out. So even the whites had like sediment floating in the bottom of them. And we're like, ooh, like we really either the winery should have sat on this juice a little bit longer or we need to just like let these sit for at least a month because they're cloudy and they're weird and they don't smell. Yeah, so letting wines wineries, sit for a while. Yeah. yeah, wineries usually once they freshly bottle, we'll let them sit a month or a couple of months before they ship them. So if you get one that they're just bottling real quick so you can sample it, uh, it's not at its peak to right. be tasted yet. Or it's an emergency and they have to send some wine. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, you know, there's always those um, exceptions to the rule. But So, so yeah. basically we just told the listeners how, how to detect it, how it happens, how can we fix it, Kim? We know this, we open a bottle, we know it's bottle shocked or it seems like it's sick from traveling. What, what can you do to correct it? Yeah, unfortunately, the only remedy to uh, bottle sickness is time. So you might be lucky enough that the bottle that you opened uh, over after a few hours or maybe a day of having some uh, oxygen exposure of the wine will start to taste better after a little bit of time. But if not, then you're, you're kind of a little out of luck. But maybe if you have a second or third bottle of that wine, you know just to let it sit for a little while. But I think with time, if you've opened up the bottle and it's you know, not smelling as vibrant as it should, or it's tasting like mute, like it's muted and the fruit flavors really aren't where you think they're supposed to be, give it some time, give it some air. It seems like time really is, uh, is the thing that will, will fix these uh, dumb bottles, as we say. So is, is this a case, Kim, that you find out you, you just got a bottle sent to you. It, it does have some bottle shock. It, if you aerate it, it's a waste of time. Will it help a little if you aerate it or decant it? I think it'll help a little, but um, not opening the bottle and just letting it have more time to settle down and become what it's supposed to be is really the best thing to do for it. Yeah, it's so hard. You get something shipped to you and you, you just want to... Yeah. You know, it's there finally, so you want to open it up. But and you sometimes you can't, you know, sometimes there's no way around it. I mean, if you were buying a special bottle for, say, a special birthday party or an anniversary, and you need it for that particular day, that's really hard to be like, I'm sorry, I've got to wait a week. Like, no, you know, you really want to open right. that bottle when you want to open it. So, you know, sometimes there's no way around it. And so decanting it is going to help uh, open up a little bit. But um, time is really the only, the only thing for it. And years ago, a lot of wines, they used to ship through uh, on airplanes. Like when the first like Beaujolais Village come out, they wanted to mm -hmm. send them over on the Concorde over here to get them here quick. There was an air sickness factor. Is that the same to you as bottle shock? Yes, I believe it is the same thing. I know that there is a different phenomenon, which is that wines will taste different to your palate if you are actually drinking them in an airplane because of just our physiology. Uh, things don't taste the same when you're at higher altitudes, but that's, a, I think, a different phenomenon than what we're talking about here. But still, it's still related, though. It gets, mm -hmm. it gets And I think damaged. that has something to do with not only the travel, but the pressure on the bottles and all the vibrations that they undergo while being in hold of an airplane. So when you were a salesperson in the, the wine industry, Kim, and a wine just came in and they tell you, you have to bring this out. It's, it's new. Did you ever get nervous that it was mm. going to be not ready Absolutely. to? Yeah. Yeah. 
Like if that thing had just landed from California or had just landed from France or Italy, I would be really worried about showing that right off the bat. I would definitely want it to sit for a little while. Did um, they tend to hold them back? Yeah. In, yeah. The company the that I worked for definitely did. Like they didn't pop open a bottle that had, you know, just arrived. It would sit in the warehouse for a little while. Um, I feel like the only times that had ever happened to us where we tasted wines that had just arrived were either, like I said before, for a big industry tasting where they just hadn't been able to get the wines to us ahead of time. And maybe the person who was pouring the wines behind the table had brought them with them from California or from someplace else. Um, or if it was, you know, something that just arrived and for us to taste in a sales meeting. So the staff of the company, uh, we got to taste it first, but then it would sit for a little while before we actually took it out and showed it to our customers. So we always tried to make it a point that our customers were really tasting and seeing the best, but that would that definitely does require a little bit of time to let the bottles get over their bottle shock. And did you ever use the term dumb, that a wine is dumb or heard anyone ever use that yes, term? Yes, I think I use it all the time. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, that, that's kind of common, at least for me. I mean, I, I don't know that I would necessarily say it with a customer unless I really knew that they knew wine and that they wouldn't take offense of, for me saying that this is a dumb bottle. But I definitely have used the term, this is a dumb bottle of wine with have people. You, have you ever held an event where someone was tasting and they told you the wine was dumb? Um, I can't think of one off, off the top of my head, but I'm sure it's happened. It's just, I would just keep, ha you know, I'm badgering you about that because I just, I, you know, I have not really, it doesn't come around much to me. And I, I mean, I read a lot of material and it doesn't show up in a lot of literature that I read in the, in the hmm. wine world either. So I'm just curious how yeah, often you I do feel you like it. I ran across it at least on a few occasions that it wasn't something that only happened like once in my career. Well, yeah, next, definitely next time you gotta, you gotta tell me, say, okay. All right. <laughs> Corked bottles are, are, are way more frequently found than, yeah. uh, than dumb bottles, I guess. That's for sure. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find more information about Kim on her website, vinitaswineworks.com, and you can find more information about myself on franklinliquors.com. Next, we want to talk about an article in Forbes from our friend, and I, I keep saying it's our friend, Kim, but we always mispronounce her name, I feel, Kathy Hoya. Is that how we say it? Hoya, correct? Hoya, oh, yeah. I believe that. And correct. you reached out to her to make sure we pronounced it right, so I hope <laughs> we still don't hack that. Yeah, we've had it over Facebook a couple of times. <laughs> Well, she was talking in this article, Kim, and I'm a huge wine book geek, and she was talking about how wine books can really get you motivated to explore wine. And I was really excited to read this, being the wine book geek, Kim. And what was your take on what she said? I think that this article was lovely because it touches on uh, a number of different genres. So I really feel like there's something for everyone here. Like if you have any sort of passing interest in wine or the wine business, there is a wine here for you. I feel like this was actually kind of a nice counterpoint article to the one that we talked about for movies um, a couple of months back where there were, um, you know, all these different genres of wine movies that, that are out there. It's like some are documentaries and some are like 
clunky artsy movies and other ones are romances and other ones are historical fiction. I feel like this is a somewhat similar list, but for books. And uh, like you, I am also a bit of a book geek and I just redid my bookshelves the other day and I have like entire shelves full of wine books. So it's, um, it's really fun for me to read articles about what else is out there for uh, wine literature. But this was nice because there are some things that are how-tos, there are some that are memoirs, uh, there are others that are written by other people but are talking about up-and-coming new personalities in the wine world. Some are reference books, you know, some are tasting books. So there's really a little bit of everything. And what is, for me, one of the fascinating things about wine is that there's so much history and culture and sometimes there's you know gossip and scandal and all sorts of you know the, the stuff that you deal with in everyday life anyway um, and wine encompasses all of those things so there's really something I think fun for anyone if you like wine and you like to read there are all these books out there uh, for you to explore. Yeah, and she highlighted the article saying ways to spice up your interest in, yes. in wine. And interesting category she had, like you said, Kim, how to memoir reference. And there was another one she put in there called indie. Or yeah, the indie category. Books. And this is one thing my family gets totally upset with me on, Kim, because I always make my book list. I'll say it's my birthday. It's a holiday. Here's what I want. I want the books that I've been researching all year. I made a list for you. And they always come back to me and say, these books, you cannot just go to like Barnes and Noble and get these books because they're independent, independent publishing. You have to order them directly from these individuals. So ah. I love exploring those types of books. Yeah. Uh, most of the time, they're like a pre-order. So I'll see an article on the internet about a new book coming out and I highlight it and to order it in the future. And you find a lot of on connections on your like LinkedIn account mm -hmm. where people and publishers will put them out there. So I, it was great she highlighted because, that. You know, the people who are publishing their books, either self-publishing their books or going through these really small indie publishers, you also feel like you're really supporting a small business when you're buying their book. You know, you're not going through Amazon to get it. You're going, you know, right to the source and you're supporting those people. So, you know, that kind of must give the same sort of feeling as buying from a small winemaker. It's like, wow, I really feel like my dollars are making a difference. And that's exactly what you're doing here with these uh, small independent books, too. So, yeah, exactly. Cool. You see that a lot. Of, I'll see a lot of times people say, oh, this week, you know, just give us whatever you feel you want, you know, five, 10, 20 bucks. We'll send you a copy of the book. And uh, I've done that a few times. And yeah. I was worried, like, wow, these people are never going to really send me, but I want to support them. And they send the book and they usually put a nice little note. You know, that's a great thing when you get in a, a book from an author and they write you a little note for Aww. thanks for supporting them. Nice. But my shelf is filled like you, Kim, and I'd probably say 70% of them I've read and the other 30% still have dust on them and I bought them and I never hey, get I to think 70% is a pretty good, <laughs> that's a pretty good yeah. number. Well, that's my speed reading, you know, I hit what I have Excellent. to hit. And, it's always, and when we're studying things, you always research books to help us study that area or that mm -hmm. region or that grape or something. And we always end up with a ton more reference books as well. Right. So Yeah, reference books, I think for those of us that are in the industry, um, that make up a lot of our bookshelf. I know I have a lot of books on, you know, French wine, or we have all of the study materials that we've 
amassed over the years for all of our certification courses. Um, I know I have lots of wine books from grad school. So I mean, that just right there is one shelf. But what I've been finding lately is some of the books that are written for a more general audience are a lot of fun to read because, you know, on the one hand, I can kind of gloss over a lot of the stuff because it's like, oh yeah, I understand, you know, you don't have to walk me through how wine is made. I know that. (laughs) Or I don't, you know, I don't need to know about the history of Bordeaux because I already know that. But then there's other stuff that's really fun. So for instance, right now I'm reading a book called The Billionaire's Vinegar, which is about the auctioning off of uh, bottles that were purported to be Thomas Jefferson's. Uh, And this happened in the 1980s. So it's more kind of like a mystery story and it's all wrapped up in uh, wine counterfeiting, which I find to be a fascinating subject. So, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of books out there that maybe are meant for a, a more general audience can be fun for us wine professionals to read, too. So. Yeah, and you mentioned reference books a lot of times too, Kim. You, there's a lot of these wine, we, we talked about in a past episode about wine education courses and certification courses. A lot of times you can buy those books. You don't have to take the class. You can, re, you can independently buy the book on your mm-hmm. own and, and read it. The great reference materials. Absolutely. Or even something just like, you know, wine for dummies. Great reference material to have on your bookshelf. And that way you don't, you know, need to text your wine buddy. You can go, go look it up. Not that I mind getting texts from my friends about wine because it happens all the time. Thank you for joining us today on the wonderful world of wine. We have been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. Join us every week at this time for another episode of our wine program. And you can also find past episodes on SoundCloud or iTunes. Cheers. Bye.